The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So we'll experiment with this mic. If you can't hear me, don't be polite, okay? Wave your, you know, put your hands up and I'll know what's up. So I have uh, uh, with me uh, a co-conspirator here tonight, Henry Montgomery, also known as MC. And uh, we're going to be sharing the evening together. Henry has served 24 years in San Quentin and has been out for about a month now. And, uh, you know, I figure more exciting to bring somebody than to just talk about people, so... We're going to share the evening together. I'll start. He'll do a piece, and we'll have some questions and answer. So nice to relax on a summer night, huh? I don't know. Does it get foggy here? I think you have the best weather in... America in Redwood City. I read that somewhere. All right. Good. But yeah, so just, you know, the sweetness of Sangha, right? Of coming together and holding each other in some way. Very different. Have you noticed to sit by yourself, sit together? They equally have their joys and value, but... Still, sitting together, very sweet. I think Paul Tillich said, um, the first duty of love is listening. And that's, in a sense, what we do. You know, when we turn inward and really begin to listen, how does this moment reveal itself? How does this experience through the body, through this temple announce itself in our being. And so it's like a deep listening. Rachel Nomi Raymond said that listening is the oldest and perhaps the most powerful tool of healing. It is often through the quality of our listening and not the wisdom of our words that we are able to affect the most profound changes in the people around us. When we listen, we offer with our attention an opportunity for wholeness. Our listening creates sanctuary for the homeless parts within the other person and ourselves. That which has been denied, unloved, devalued, that which is hidden, Listening creates a holy silence. I guess I have to keep talking now, right? <laughs> um, but I like that line, listening creates a silence. I mean, it's usually we get silent because we listen. But it's also, as she says, true that listening creates a holy silence.
So there's something about that experience of um, feeling that it is, when we inspire, that it is inspiriting. This is how we teach it in the prison, so that whatever your persuasion, you know, you can all come and listen to a, a method of mindfulness that invites you to go inside. Um, so that movement of the spirit when we breathe in and we breathe out. Um, very deep experience. You know, it's, it's a little bit like when you uh, commune in nature sometimes. It's like a different language is being spoken. You, you understand it. It's not quite in English. But you know that you're communing. So this is also possible to do in the meditation with thinking of the breath as the spirit, or not thinking of it rather, but feeling it. So in the prison we work with that in all kinds of ways. There's a a program that MC was part of as well called GRIP, Guiding Rage into Power. And it deals with transforming violence, and it deals with emotional intelligence and mindfulness. And it's like a a year-long program. And it's co-taught by other prisoners. It's kind of a bios for us, about us feel. And so um, I'm going to tell a story about uh, one inmate that uh, came to the program. he was not a life-sentenced man, and, and in this particular class, everybody else was a life-sentenced man. And he walked into it, and he said, I need some help. And we all sort of said, okay, what do you need? He said, well, I'm going through it. He said, I got a, um, there was an announcement made over the speakers in the yard that I live that there was a phone call for me at the lieutenant's office. So I go to the lieutenant's office. He's sitting there and says, it's your ex-wife. So I take the call, and I learned that my daughter had committed suicide and that she was in a coma. He said, and I'm just beside myself. My family needs me out there. I can't get out. You know, I can't even sleep anymore. I, 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 you know, I need help. So we invited him to sit down and somewhat against protocol, because it's a closed class, actually. But. And he was asked a few questions, and I asked him one. I said, have you ever been in a coma? He said, yes, I have, twice, actually. I said, well, how did that happen? And he said, you know, violence, gangs, drug enforcement, you know, drug debt enforcement. And got hit over the head, and I've been in comas. I said, well, can you see that she took the next one? Because children will do this in the family system. You know, they love blindly. They, they carry the pain in the family. Very loyal. And uh, she had left a note, you know, saying, if I can't have my father, they can't have me either. So I said, okay, you know, why don't you uh, join us? Take a lot of notes, you know, be a good student. Get on the phone. 
Start forgiving everybody who you can forgive, offering your apologies, asking for forgiveness. And maybe if you start to own your pain, you know, it will have an effect on her, who knows. And then we'll pray for her at the end of class. I never was into praying so much, but in prison you learn how to pray. So we did that. And the guys made a card for her and wrote messages, send it to the hospital, because um, it was felt that that's what they wanted to do, make a gesture. And after four weeks, he came with a big smile, and he said, she's out of the coma. And the whole class erupted. Yay! And um, he was the only one that was going to uh, leave shortly, Right? So we, we worked with him. We asked, you know, what brought you in here? You know, and he said, well, I was in a fight with five cops, and one of them ended up in a hospital. And uh, that's what got me in here. So we asked him to write a letter, not to be sent, but uh, of forgiveness, you know, asking forgiveness of this officer. So he did all that, read it out loud in the class. Then it was his time to go. And so he left, and he couldn't parole back to the county that he committed his crime, where all his family was, because there was a stay-away order. You know, he was a a high-risk offender. But the parole office somehow didn't get it, and they said, you got to go back there. He said, no, I shouldn't. They said, yes, you should. He said, whatever. And then he got to that county, and in the parole office there, they said, what are you doing here? I said, yeah, well, this is how it goes. They said, well, we'll pay your bus ticket to go to the next county, and we'll actually get you a police escort to make sure the bus is on the freeway. So he's sitting in the bus station, and a store gets robbed near the bus station, and the police sweep through the bus station. You know, how long has this person been here? How long has this person been here? And he looks around, there's the officer that he battered into the hospital. And the officer doesn't... uh, recognize him. And um, he says, uh, Officer Salinas, uh, do you know who I am? And the officer looks at him, and he still doesn't recognize him. He's kind of filled out, his hair has grown. And he said, well, I'm the guy who, you know, got you into the hospital. And he said, I've done a lot of work, and I made a promise to my, uh, my group you know, my, my fellow students and my teacher and my daughter that I'm no longer a violent man and would you forgive me for what I've done to you? And the cop goes, whoa, I've never been in a situation like this before. <laughs> so they sit down and he orders the men out of the uh, bus station so they can sit down and they make their peace right there. And I look at the letter because I, I had a copy of it, and it, it ends with, Well, Officer Salinas, I hope our paths will cross one day and that as men we can sit together and shake hands and make our peace. And that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so I tell that story because, um, you know, when people commit to their healing in, in these programs, it, it can really... Uh, in sometimes a very synchronistic way, offer uh, the most amazing outcomes. 
And so now he's out there, um, Anthony, um, teaching in a domestic violence program. And I was saying, you know, I know you're in a homeless shelter. This is the hard time. This is where we lose people the first 90 days when you have no money and you're in the wrong neighborhoods. He said, no, no, no. I made a promise to those lifers. And uh, he's doing well. So Anthony took full use of the program. You know, we also teach yoga and we teach a meditation. We started to do retreats in San Quentin and other prisons uh, through a network we've set up. And Gil, of course, it had to be Gil, has been very uh, supportive of this. Um, so I want to say that out loud in here. Um, I want to give up, really, uh, I, there was other things I could say about what we do and, and, and how it affects people, but I'm so excited MC is with us here. So uh, I want to give him some time and um, share a little bit about his experience. All right. Yeah. Yeah, I can hear it. You guys can hear me? Uh-huh. All right. Well, first of all, I would like to um, graciously thank all of you guys for allowing me to be here with you. This is, this is really beautiful. You have no idea. That's my favorite word now, beautiful. <laughs> Everything is just beautiful. But I've been in a lot of groups before. I've been surrounded by a lot of different people, but I've never been surrounded by spirits. And it's just awesome. I feel your energy, and it's, it's, it's amazing. Um, I'll share a little um, of my story with you guys. Um, I'll share my first experience with violence and my last experience that led me to prison. Um, my mom, she, um, she used to have a lot of abusive boyfriends, and I didn't grow up with a father. And when I was four years old, it's funny how I can remember this like it was yesterday. Um, she used to date this guy named Clarence. And Clarence was very, very violent. And um, I don't remember, I remember him slapping her, but I don't remember jumping on his back at four years old. And how I remember that, because she used to brag to people on the phone when I was a teenager. She used to say, my baby jumped on his back at four years old. But anyway, they were arguing, and um, Clarence had slapped her. And my little self tried to jump on his back. And I remember he grabbed me, and, and he threw me from about here to where that gentleman is. And I hit the wall. And I guess I must have blanked out for a few seconds. And I remember my mom holding me, and she was saying, baby, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And Clarence used to carry a miniature hatchet. And um, he ran in the room, and he came back with his hatchet. And he grabbed my mom by her collar, and he grabbed me by my collar at four years old. And he said, if either one of you mother effers ever raise your hand to hit me again, I'll chop you both up in a little bitty pieces. 
and I'll call the police and say that I found you guys like this. And um, after that, I remember my mom, she went in the refrigerator and she got some type of drink and she kept making him drink it to get him drunk. And um, he finally got drunk and he passed out. She had to drink it too, you know, so he wouldn't know what she was doing. And um, when he went to sleep, she kept telling me to be quiet. I remember she kept doing this. And um, she put my jacket on and I can actually still feel my little arms going through that jacket, going through the sleeves. And she kept telling me to be quiet. And she snuck over to him and she was sneaking her hand in his pockets. And she was trying to sneak his keys. And I knew as a four-year-old that if he were to wake up, that he was going to kill us. And I will never forget that fear. And she was successful. She got the keys. And I remember she opened the door real quietly. And I remember she closed it and we walked down the stairs and we got in the car and we started driving. And whether it was because she was intoxicated or upset, she was driving a little erratic and the police pulled us over. And um, an officer came on her side of the window, he came on my side of the window. And one officer on my side opened the door and snatched me out of the car. So naturally a mother's instinct is to protect her baby. So she tried to come out the car. They dragged her out of the car and they beat her right in front of me. So I've always had a problem with authority figures since then. And um, that was my first violent experience. I'll make this experience a little shorter because it's kind of brutal. But um, November 23rd, 1986, at the Santa Monica Pier, I was on a double date. Um, when I turned into a teenager, I started getting, I'm from Los Angeles, I started getting jumped by gangs, Crips and Bloods. I've been um, in the hospital several times. I got stabbed by my girlfriend and a whole bunch of other things. But anyway, the last time I got robbed, I had made up my mind that I would never, ever be a victim. Um, somebody else would be a victim. And I'm on a double date, and this guy, he's trying to talk to the girl that I'm with, and she tells him, she said, this is my boyfriend. He tells her, I don't give a F. I feel like fighting anyway. So I found out later on that his blood point average was 0.26. He had been drinking, but I was so in fear of him. You know, I didn't even think that the guy was drunk. So he kept threatening me and telling me how he was going to whoop me in front of his two-year-old son. He had a two-year-old son, and he would tell his son, this is a bee right here, and you're going to watch your daddy beat this bee's ass. And um, this went on for like 40 minutes, and he followed us up to Ocean Avenue, while spitting on me. And um, there was a point where him and the girl who I was with, they started arguing, and she told him, why don't you just leave? She said, if you guys fight, and even if you win, you're still not going to have me, so why don't you just leave? So he said, all right. He said, I'm going to leave because you asked me, not because of this bee right here, referring to me, of course. So they walk off. And when they walked off, I just, I felt so many emotions that I've never felt the humiliation, the embarrassment, the cowardness. And I remember that promise I made the last time I got robbed that I wasn't gonna let nobody hurt me. And I didn't want my god brother near me. I didn't want the girls near me. I just wanted to go home. About five minutes passed and now they're coming back. And as they're coming back, his cousin who was with him, he's pretending to have a gun. Found out later he didn't have a gun. So he's threatening to shoot me. The guy walks up. He says some words to the girl, he looks at me, and he reaches over and he spits a glob of spit in my face. And I went into my pocket, I pulled my knife out, and I stabbed him several times. And I chased his cousin, and I swung at him, and I cut him. Um, 
I pleaded guilty to involuntary manslaughter, but when the judge found out that I had an assault as a 14-year-old, he took my deal back and forced me to trial, and I got 16 of life, and I just got out 34 days ago. Um, while in prison, I'm an only child, so um, me and my mom were more like brothers and sisters, and I remember one time she sent a picture, and she had a black eye on the picture, and um, I asked her what was wrong and what happened, and she said nothing. And I called my uncles, and I said, some guy gave my mom a black eye, go over and see him, and they didn't go over, and they didn't do anything, and I hated my family for that. But as time went on, my anger got worse and worse, and the ironic part was that I didn't even know I had an anger problem. I thought that if a person did something to me, they gave me a right to be violent to this person. And what actually made me realize I had an anger problem, I had arg well, I didn't actually have an argument, a guy that I really didn't like, I just tolerated. He was bothering me one day and I, I, I turned my face and I said some vicious words to him. And when I did that, I had so much venom in me. And I said, wow, I really have a problem. So there, there was a meditation class coming up and, um, that I had heard about, and I talked to a guy. He said, yeah, man, come on, man. It's, it's open to everybody. A lot of times in prison, you have to always be on a list for everything. You can't just show up. You know, when I wanted to go to church, if you wasn't on a list, you can't go. So I'm like, that doesn't make sense. So this function, you didn't have to be on a list. So I went, and I liked what I, uh, what I experienced. And um, that was the first beginning of my healing process. Um, many, many years later, I wound up at San Quentin, and um, I did a lot of groups, um, anger management, uh, impact, I mean, I did a lot of groups, but none of the groups ever gave me tools to deal with my anger issues for conflict resolution. And in prison, everything is ego. You, you can't let a person disrespect you. you I mean, there's just so many rules. Uh, blacks can't sit with the whites. You can't walk across this area because it's the Southern Mexicans area. This is the Indians area. This is the whites. This is the uh, others. And everything is just so segregated. But anyway, um, one day I wound up in Jock's class. And out of all those groups that I took through all those years, I still didn't have the tools to calm me whenever I found myself upset or wanting to be violent. And the very first day, I always tell Jack this, it is so amazing. The very first day that I went to his class, um, what's the big brother's name that went home? Leonard. Mm -hmm. Leonard got up and he demonstrated something and he gave me some tools. And I was just so blown away. He said, when you get upset, and Jock teaches this in part of his curriculum. I like how he always breaks down words. He said, when you get upset, we say words and we just say words. When I'm upset, I'm upset. But your body literally gets up and you set, like ready, set, go. So you're up and you're set, you're ready to attack. So Leonard, he's standing at the board and he's saying all these things and he says, well, people, there's something that you do. Everyone does something. And I remember my girlfriend used to tease me when I used to get mad, my nose used to flare. And she's like, don't be flaring your nose at me. <laughs> And um, so I had to pay attention to what is it that I do when I get upset. Some people, they, they, they grunt their teeth, you know. Some people, they neck tighten. Some people ball their fists or whatever it is. So 
Um, Leonard, he kept going on, and I mean, I was just identifying with everything he was saying, and I was like, wow. He was like, what about your breathing? You know, your breathing. Some people, um, like me, I, I hyperventilate, and, and, and I was like, wow. And then he told me how to de-escalate it, and that's what I loved about it. He told me how to bring those emotions down and how to notice myself, and that's another thing that he teaches in um, Mindful. Um, meditation, how to notice yourself, notice what's going on, be mindful and aware on purpose. And um, I was just so happy that I learned, finally I learned some tools how to deal with my issues. And um, I had an incident with an officer one day, and he was in a tower, and he was threatening to shoot me because I had stepped over a yellow line. And um, he cursed me out, he called me all kind of names, and I felt so you know, the Melrose belief system, you know, you can't let a dude talk to you like that and blah, blah, blah. So he's cursing me out and I'm just, I'm just standing there taking it. And he has the gun pointed at me. He's like, you want to get shot out freaking? And I'm just sitting there just trying to, you know, trying to remain calm. And um, then I started going through the processes that I was learning in Jock's class and it worked. And um, I couldn't wait to get back to class. So I could <laughs> I, and I, I told him about my first incident that I had when I got out. I had what we call an imminent danger moment. And an imminent danger moment is um, basically when you're in imminent danger. Um, if you use drugs, it would be the, the moment be- between craving and using. Uh, if you're a violent person, it would be the moment of the thought and the actual hit, the actual attack of someone. And um, last month when I paroled, I had to parole to a drug program, even though I don't use drugs, but they accepted me, so that's where I had to go. And in order to be in this program, I had to do four car washes um, for the first four weeks, and this guy kept spraying me with this water hose. And I'm, I'm, first time, you know, I'm not, it doesn't, it's all right, I'm at a car wash, I understand. Then he hits me again, and I'm like, all right, let me get out the way. And when he hit me the third time, I said, excuse me, sir, I'm, I'm trying to wash the car, could you please say something before you spray it? And he's like, all right, well, all right. Uh, so I stayed away from him for like three hours, and then we ended up working on a car like three hours later, and he sprayed me again in my face, and then I started getting pissed off. And I'm like, hey, dude. I said, man, I didn't got hit with that water hose four times. So my, um, what Jock uh, teaches us, my, um, my, um, not ego, my mind's going blank right now. Yeah, my hit man, that's the person who gives you permission to be violent, tells me that he's disrespecting you, right? So that's how you pump yourself up before you do an act. So I'm sitting there, you know, in the Melrose belief system. I'm saying, um, yeah, this dude is disrespecting you. He's doing that on purpose. This is what I'm telling myself. So I said, hey, dude, you just sprayed me. No, I didn't tell him. He sprayed me. I said, I got hit four times with that water. So he says, well, why don't you just back up and get out the way? So I'm like, wow. So now you're telling me, screw me. This is what my mind is telling me. So I'm like, okay, all right, I'm going to back up and get out the way. So I'm going through it right now. This is the moment that we call sitting in the fire. So when you sit in the fire, that's when you're just going through it and you have to deal with it. You know, you have to sit there and be still and just go through all your anger. So I'm sitting in the fire, and I get up, and I walk over about 100 feet away from him, and I start doing my breathing exercises. And it literally took me like 20 minutes to calm down. But when I finally did it, I was so happy. (laughs) And I called Jock, and I said, Jock, I had my first imminent danger moment (laughs) in the world, and I won. (laughs) So, man, man. So I'm going to give it back to Jock, because I can go on all night. (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah um, yeah um, there were a lot of things I, want, I wanted to do here and um, this means a lot to me because 
the family of the person who I killed. His name was Glenn Terman Jr. And um, his mother's name is Carol. And his son, who was two years old at the time, name is Justin. And Justin came to one of my board hearings. And he was so afraid of me. He was shaking. And, I mean, he was just petrified. And when you're, when you're in the board, you can't respond or speak back to the people. You have to just listen to what they say. And they can say anything they want to say. I hope you die. And you're where you need to be. And, I mean, uh, if I could pull the switch, if I could take you back to court and pull the switch, give you the, I'll do it. And you just have to sit there and accept it. And even if you want to apologize, that's something that you never do. Because... It's, quote-unquote, a rule that you never tell a person, family, that you've murdered, that you're sorry. And I don't know if anyone in here has lost anybody to violence or has been attacked by an assailant or if anyone in here has been raped or anything spiritually physically or emotionally harmful, but I would like to apologize to anyone who has suffered violence. And I just want to thank you for allowing me to do this because I would really like to show the family of my victim what I'm doing with my life now and what I do every day. And my mission every day is to serve you know, in any way that I can, and that's something that I'll never be able to do. You know, they hate my guts, which is, of course, understandable. And um, so, once again, if there's anyone who's ever been hurt by violence or lost a family member or a friend, and I just apologize wholeheartedly for the pain that you've gone through, and thank you for allowing me to be here. And with that, just take a moment of silence to sit with that. One of the uh, other gifts of uh, MC's being is um, that he's an artist, a spoken word artist. <coughs> MC is a spoken word artist. And so um, I know that. And for you not to know that would seem like a shame. So I was wondering. Uh, if you can find the gear shift there, if you would uh, share one of your pieces with us. I don't know, in the car we were talking about a piece you wrote for your daughter? Yeah. You up for it? Yeah, yeah, I'm good. Okay. Well, um, when I left, um, when I got arrested, um, my daughter was 
11 months. Her name is Janelle Regina Montgomery. All right. And we named her Regina because we put my ex-girlfriend's first name, Ray Ann, and my middle name, Eugene, together. And she's um, 25 right now, and I haven't seen her since she was three. And I used to write letters to her all the time. And um, I wrote her an R&B song, and I wrote her a rap. And the rap is called um, Since You've Been Gone. And the R&B song is called You'll Never Know How Much. And I'm going to try to sing it. I don't know how my voice is because I'm a little emotional. (laughs) But I'm going to try to sing it for you. <laughs> well, actually, this is R&B. All right. Um. <laughs> You'll have to come back. Get it right. Get it right. <laughs> All right. It goes on. <clears throat> I see your face when I'm asleep or when awake. Your smile, it takes my breath away. Just want to stay here with you. If I could take a single day, a night, a moment of my life and dedicate it to you, then that's what I'd do. Girl, you will never know how much you really mean to me. But on this special day, I really want to say, Janelle, I love you more than there's fish in the sea. I pray that you come back to me. We're family, and I hope that you will see how much I love you. You fill a space that's in my heart, and now I feel complete, a part of something better than I've ever felt before. Oh, how I wish that you would see all the things you mean to me. Oh, baby, you're the only girl that I adore. You will never know how much you really mean to me. But on your special day, I really want to say, Janelle, I love you more than there's fish in the sea. I pray that you come back to me. We're family, and I hope that you will see how much I love you. You never know just what you mean to me, cause baby, you're my everything. You're my hopes and dreams. So I dedicate this song to you and hope you'll see my love is true. Never ever will I run away. Deep within my heart is where you'll always stay. Then that's when the harps and the strings and all that comes in. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, man. You're welcome. So uh, we have a little bit of time for questions. So anybody have a question? In the back.
So Henry, here's a bunch of us, mostly with good hearts, would like to help in some way, but we don't really know what we could do. Could you give us any idea of, you know, like an hour a week? That's just off the top of my head, but there might be something that people could do to try to help in some way, and it's so gigantic. It's so gigantic. I mean, what ends, you know. I don't mean about getting your song into the R&B chart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, just, we have a tiny little socially engaged Buddhism group here. And mm. um, I just hoped you might be able to, you know, just give us some idea, maybe some idea. Oh, um. That's um, a good question. Um, every day, um, I'm in this drug program, and from like 8.30 to 11 o'clock, and it's in Berkeley. And at 11.30, I go to Center and Shuttock Street, and it's a BART station right there. And I call this my girl watching hour. And it is so many beautiful women that just walk by, and I just sit there and flirt all day. And um, I just think to myself how blessed I am. And um, when I walk down the street, matter of fact, when me and Jock were coming here and we were walking down the street, and I just look as we're crossing the street, and you have all these trees on this side and this side, and you have this open space. And I said, man, that is just so freaking beautiful. And um, we went for a walk because we were kind of early, and I didn't tell them this. As we were walking by, there was a little teeny girl. She was on a swing. And things like that just, you have no idea what it does to me. It just, it blows me away. I don't know if I was talking to Jack or someone else the other night. I was sitting on my porch, and a guy came down the street on his motorcycle, and he had his four- or three-year-old son on a miniature motorcycle with training wheels. And that just, oh, it just filled me up, you know. So I, I don't really know what to say. I don't really know what I need. Um, I want a lot of things, but it's not about my wants. It's about what I need. And I think what I need, I mean, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, I'm right. I'm right. What I need is love. And I have that. Uh, I feel that here. And I just, I feel so, I feel so freaking alive and Oh, it is just, it's, I, I'm going to tell you exactly what I felt like the first three weeks I was out. Have any of you guys watched The Matrix? <laughs> okay, now just imagine when Keanu Reeves, he's in this world and he's knowing that something's not right. He's not supposed to be here. Something's wrong with the people or something. I feel like it's, it's almost like I shouldn't be here, you know, like. As, as I, well, I felt like that for three weeks. I would walk down the streets and, and everyone is always asking me, well, what does it feel like being out? Um, all the new technology and what do you feel? Are you scared? And this and this and this. And I'm like, no, none of that, none of that trips me out. I don't feel like I'm lost, like I'm left behind. Uh, the technology, none of that bothers me. What, what, what I would trip on as I would be walking down the street 
it seems surreal. It was like everything, like I'm in a movie. Even when I talk to people, they don't feel real. It's like, wow, like I'm in a movie. So um, before I fall off point, um, every, I don't want to say moment, because that, that word seems too long, but every Miller, the furthest that you can go to the, to the, the least amount of a second that you can chip off feels so wonderful to me. You know, so I don't really, I don't really think I need anything. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, in other words, you've given me, just by asking me that, you've given me what I need. Thank you. Okay, well, I think that's a wonderful note to complete the evening on. We, of course, could spend the rest of the evening going back and forth, and maybe we'll come back sometime, but... Thank you very much for your uh, rapt attention, and thank you, MC, for who you are. Man. Thank you, man. And it's so, it's really special for me to like sit next to you here, you know, after all these years. Yeah, I know. Behind bars. Yeah. This is a sweet moment. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs>